Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Rodcast. Today, we are continuing on our tax theme and I've got the pleasure of being joined once again by Simon Howley and Andrew Thornhill QC. And we're continuing the tax theme today on tax planning for property investors and developers. So we're going to be talking a lot about uh, different structures of purchasing and various different things like that. So Simon, did you want to um, kick off by explaining maybe some of the different ways in which property investors can hold property or purchase property? Yes, I mean, obviously, you know, choice you can own it personally, you can own it via a partnership, whether that be a general partnership or a limited liability partnership, or hold it in a company. Obviously, partnerships cannot own property in its own name. I mean, LLP can, of course. Most people now are trying to incorporate um, due to the restrictions on the interest relief on financing. Um, so we've seen quite a few cases over the past few years, and certainly uh, now, uh, where people are trying to transfer their portfolios into a limited company. But that, of course, brings um, different complications that I think we covered in, in earlier uh, podcasts, and I've certainly covered in, in articles on, on LinkedIn. So that, that's one of way. I mean, one question you get asked quite a bit, really, is, is why use a company? But of course, there's some obvious reasons for that. Lower tax rates, of course, in a company than there are for personal rates. There's limited liability, which is quite important, but then we have to balance that out with, of course, most lenders will want a personal guarantee of some description. It's also important also that if the economy turns for the worst, we're currently in, a, in the COVID-19 crisis, then it could give you some protection yeah. um, on the downside. And obviously, it's, it's easier to split ownership and the running of the company with shares and directorships. So it's, it's a much more flexible tool to use a, a company. Yeah, and just picking up off that, I think, um, and, and again, we'll talk about why someone might use a company in order to buy development sites or as well. But I think uh, you touched on a very important point, which was about the splitting ownership up. And again, I know you've done some really great articles on LinkedIn about making sure that your articles of association are set out correctly uh, for the different types of shares that you might be uh, setting up. I know, for example, especially when we do developments and we're putting in director's loan, uh, we're lending money to that company. One of the first things we always do is put a, uh, a floating charge on that director's loan because I know if there is an issue that comes up later on and for whatever reason that company needs to be liquidated, then your money is becomes more secure than maybe your unsecured creditors, people like your um, contractors, things like that. And then I guess, I guess I'm sure we'll touch on this later on where HMRC sits in that and has done and potentially will be as well. Um, but yeah, yeah. interesting points on that, I think. Perhaps it's worth just mentioning one point here. At one stage, it would have been quite attractive to have an LLP, a limited liability partnership, because it's transparent for tax, but it's got uh, certain limitations on liability for the investors. The attraction would have been that individual partners 
could take out shares of profit and leave the bulk of the profits in the company. Now, that's cheaper than having simply a company and then taking out salary or dividends. The trouble is, though, that some legislation was passed about mixed partnerships, which broadly, not entirely, destroys that advantage. So probably it's a much simpler choice now between some kind of perfectly ordinary partnership or a company. The other point I was going to make is this. With the lockdown and the enormous amount of government borrowing, it does seem reasonably foreseeable that the government are going to have to raise tax rates to try and get some of the money back again. Now, the interesting question is, would they raise corporation tax first and foremost or income tax? My guess is they'll go for income tax first. So that's an added advantage in having everything inside a company. You'll probably keep the lower rate of tax. And that lower rate of tax is very valuable if you don't want to extract the profits, but want to reinvest them in the next project. Obviously, the less tax you pay on the profits, the more money you've got to reinvest. So for that point, from that point of view, the company really is quite good. Just on that again, if you're partnering or going into some form of joint venture with someone, not only just owning the asset within a company, but also having your shares owned by your own company can help in in the case where there may be profit in, in the original company holding the asset, but you might not want to draw out that profit personally as a dividend, whereas one of your other partners might want to. Uh, for example, if you've got a um, particularly high year of income tax and you don't want yes. to go over a threshold. So it can be, again, quite beneficial uh, in that regard. Yes, you, you could easily fix up a company with two classes of shares so that one shareholder can say, right, I'll take out my profit as dividends. The other shareholder says, well, I don't want to do that. I'd rather leave them in or yeah. possibly do a, a group dividend to another company in his group. Yeah. yeah, that's very. That's that's a very good point. It's worth mentioning also that the, the obvious downside to a company, of course, is, is the double layer of taxation. Also, that the company will pay tax itself, being a legal person in its own right, and of course, the shareholders will pay tax when they extract the money as well. So there is that side to kind of balance out as well. Yes, we we've we have touched on that in previous podcasts, haven't we? Because I mean, the obvious and attractive way of extracting the profits if you have a single purpose vehicle just doing one big development is to sell the company replete with cash to someone who wants cash. Uh, and that works. There's nothing wrong in that, um, provided, uh, I should add, provided the company's paid its full whack of corporation tax on the profits. But what you've got to watch, and you, by the way, you might get on entrepreneur's relief, but what you've got to watch is liquidation. If that company is liquidated by you or by someone else who's paid you the capital sum, then you have a real problem because of the legislation fairly recently introduced, which says if you then proceed to form another company carrying on a similar trade, what you've taken out on the liquidation, bad luck, isn't a capital sum, it's a dividend. 
uh, and that of course is a very nasty trap well, that, avoid that. That, that's that's very interesting so really what you're saying is if i had a special purpose vehicle which held an asset yep. and we yes. sold that special purpose vehicle which would benefit me potentially on possibly on entrepreneur's relief but it could also benefit the purchaser on SDLT, there could be an issue if that purchaser then decided to liquidate that company, yes, potentially sell the assets within it, and then set up a new company to again purchase and. and it, it's it's if you, the vendor, set up a new ah, company okay. in a similar trade, because you see ah. what they're really saying. It's like having one company which has made a profit. And then you want to take it out and start a new development yeah. in the same company. If you took it out, it would be a dividend. Mm-hmm. What you've done by selling the company and then forming a new co and starting off all over again is equivalent in substance to having a continuing company from which you've taken a dividend. So quite a nasty trap. Of course, if you could find a buyer who doesn't want to liquidate, for example, someone who says, look, I'll buy cash for cash because I can use the cash inside that company. That's mm-hmm. perfectly all right. It's the liquidation, which is the killing factor. And is there, is there a time frame in which... Yes, he has to finish legislation, so we're looking at April 2016 when it came in. So you've got a two-year period looking before and after. Yes, um, that's, that's right. That's right. It's well the serial liquidators, but it's quite broad. So even if you, say, liquidate a company, you could do a similar business as a sole trader. It's going to catch you there as well. Yes, that would or, be. Or, or even a person like your wife could do it as well. It can yes. you there as well. So it's, it's this quite is very, cool. yeah, this, is, this is very interesting because I know there's going to be a lot of, sort of developers and also just property traders who buy and do small refurbs and, and yes. so on and, and do that within companies. So it certainly does sound like a trap that quite a few people may be inadvertently falling into. It's um, definitely... Yeah, I think if you if it's an elephant trap, if you're not properly advised, it's a yeah. very nasty trap. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's, that's very interesting. We, we've now advised you, so it's all right. <laughs> I won't be doing that. Um, One point that um, I think... Simon was going to mention was personal guarantees and also how you deal with the company could possibly cause problems if the company goes under and you're held to have extracted profits preferentially to other creditors and so forth. Simon, do you want to say anything about that? My point really was, I mean, obviously with the anti-finish legislation, that's more really aimed at people who are habitually doing this. It's not really aimed at genuinely commercial transactions. It kind of links in in a similar way to people who get denied the main residence relief for couple of gains tax when you buy uh, serial main homes during a year. Uh, it's the intention. It's a yeah. key thing. So if, also the intention, of course, when you buy a house is for it to gain in value. But if your intention is to, is to in effect, make a profit, it has more of a trading linked to it really so there's been quite a few cases recently that bit of a tangent here but uh, the tax tribunals where people have been denied tax relief for the main residence uh, because they've been either buying one say, in january and then selling it in, in march and then maybe buy two a year and doing this year in year out um, that is a trading activity yeah While we're kind of talking about different trading activities obviously 
we've got investment where you may be purchasing a property, holding it and renting it out. And then we've got trading activities and really that can be split because you've got developments where you're maybe buying land and developing on that land or even buying properties and developing out those properties. Yeah. And then you could be either selling well, normally you will be selling or, or you or you could potentially be holding. And even if you are holding, you're more than likely selling to a linked company. But there's also trading. And when we talk about property traders, although development is normally a trade as well, but property traders are, are normally buying and selling quite quickly, well, as quickly as you can buy and sell houses and properties. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so they might be doing it on a much more frequent scale than than the developers. And is there any is there anything there that you think maybe mean that they might structure differently? So a, uh, someone who's trading properties rather than someone who's developing out and then trading. No, I think uh, that's a very interesting question. And depending on which tax you're looking at. There are all sorts of different situations. I think you've actually put your finger on it. There's pure dealing. You're mm. just buying the land, waiting for planning permission, then flogging it. Yeah. Um, that's obviously trading. Yeah. And it doesn't qualify for business property relief for inheritance tax. So it's rather cursed. <laughs> then, of course, you might buy, get planning permission, develop and sell. That's development, and that, while it's still obviously trading, uh, does help you with business property relief for inheritance tax. So it's just worth stopping there and saying there are lots of interesting cases where people have got cash or near-cash investments, and they're worried about inheritance tax. One thing they can do is put their money into a company and help a builder develop his trading stock and turn themselves into a developer. And suddenly they transform their wealth into something which qualifies for business property relief. So that's that character. Now there's another person which is very tricky. Suppose you buy the land uh, and you have to get short-term finance to buy it. But actually what you really intend to do is develop it and retain it. Mm -hmm. Now you would want to say, that's an investment activity. Um, what you've got to watch out for in that case, especially if you start with short-term finance, the revenue may come along and say, well, one of the hallmarks of a dealer is that they get short-term finance because they don't want to hold the land for very long. If, in fact, you want to get rid of that short-term finance and turn it into long-term finance, which is quite common, when you've got your planning permission and you've done your development. Uh, it's very important to signify your intentions from the outset. So you want to write a letter to your accountant and to your solicitor or someone saying, this is what I am setting out to do. This is not a short-term speculative venture. I am in here for the long term. Uh, if you've got that statement of intention clearly signaled from day one, you're in a far better position if the revenue suddenly come along later and say, we're not sure whether this wasn't trading. The typical case is someone starts off with long-term intentions, gets a short-term finance. They just turn it into long-term finance, 
Then they receive a fantastic offer, which they can't refuse. And then, of course, the revenue are going to say, well, hang on, we, we know what you were up to all the time. And you say, no, I wasn't. Then you want some evidence. Then finally, you've got the long-term investor. And whether a long-term investor wants a company or not is a very interesting point. It does have advantages. You've got no inheritance tax advantages for a property investment company, but you've got one huge advantage, which we have alluded to in past podcasts. You can lose the value in minority holdings. The minority holdings, say 20% holding an investment company, which only pays perhaps relatively modest dividends and some salaries, will be at a massive discount to the asset value. So that can be very handy for inheritance tax purposes. Um, thanks, Bobby, that, that's enough on the four types of different activities. Yeah, yeah, so, I'm, so I'm that a minority, obviously, if you, as Andrew said, 20% minority holding, I mean, the revenue manuals, I did an article yesterday, they will discount it between 50 and 70%. Oh, at least, and sometimes more than that. Yeah. yeah. And, of course, you can, you can play interesting games. You could give the dividend share preference shares to the older generation so they've got something to live on, and then the next generation get the capital growth. There, mm. there are all sorts of interesting things you can do. So I think, I think the lesson there is to have an audit trail of your intent. Uh, in terms of, yes, which activity you're falling into, make jolly sure that you signify something. In the old days, of course, you could write to your bank manager. These days, you won't have a bank manager, and I don't think the credit committee of most banks will want to hear anything from you. But I suppose you'd have to write to a credit committee if you were seeking finance. So that's where you would express your intentions. I've got a client at the moment who was an investor, but he's now trading. So the yes. intention has changed. So but the interesting thing about that is that obviously going forward from the change of intention is making trading profits, but the gain before that is still taxed as a gain as an investment. Oh, right, yes. It makes the, the, the accounting slightly more interesting. So on yeah, that indeed. accounting point, how does that show on your balance sheet? How does the actual asset show on the balance sheet? Is it stock or is it... Um, if it's an investment, it's a fixed asset because you're yeah. holding it for a long time and therefore your investment's going to be probably rental. If, it's, if you're developing, it's going to be stock in trade. It's the same as buying a pen or a widget. And so, if you change your mind halfway through, yes. then obviously it's got, you've got to take it out of the balance sheet and, and put it in fixed assets. Yeah, so it, it makes it interesting. I've got another new client I picked at the start of the year where his previous accountant, it's shown the trading company's profits as gains, which is completely wrong. So we're restating it. Right now. And because basically he also said he couldn't use up any of the, the previous year's losses because he, he, he perceived that each loss was attached to each individual transaction, which is a nonsense. So we're restating the accounts now to show it as a trading entity so that we can now relieve the losses brought forward. Yes. Well, it, it, it does show it's very important to be clear about your intentions, number one, and point number two, tell your poor accountant what they are as well so that what he sticks in the accounts is actually the same as what you're saying to everyone else. 
Absolutely. So in terms of changing your mind, and this is quite an important point because yeah. often there's times where as an investor, you set out, like you said, with the intention of holding something long term. Yes. Lots of things can come along to mean that you've got to sell something. It could be your finance costs have gone up. It could be various. Or, or someone comes with an offer you can't refuse. Absolutely. Or there's an alternative method of development which you can't do, but a supermarket can, and so you sell out. Yep. Exactly. There's, there's, there's lots and lots of different, different sort of avenues that can happen to change your mind. Yes. And what is, what's more of a problem, do you think? Is it from someone who's got an investment intention to hold it long term, who's having to then turn to trade an asset, or vice versa, is it someone whose intention is to trade the asset, but then has to, uh, for, for maybe they can't sell, the market's gone downhill like now, and so they thought, right, we'll just have to hold on to this for a while. So how does, how does that affect you? And then there's a kind of double-parted question, if one, it's owned personally, or two, it's owned within a company? Well, I think the, the worst problem is the one where you start with investment intentions, but for one reason or another, never mind what the reason is, you're either you choose or you're forced to change your mind. I mean, there you would want to say, I am an investor and therefore I don't want to pay full rates of corporation tax, etc., etc. And um, the, if you're an individual, of course, the difference will be enormous because it would be the difference between income tax and capital gains tax. Mm -hmm. What you can say is that, strictly speaking, if you did start with investment intentions, then you should be treated as an investor. And secondly... There's a very nasty anti-avoidance section, which we haven't mentioned so far. It's in section 752 following of the Income Tax Act, which talks about artificial transactions in land. Actually, it doesn't deal just with artificial transactions. It deals with any case, for example, where land is acquired with the sole or main object of realizing a gain from developing it. and uh, if such a gain is achieved, it's taxed as income, even though otherwise it would be taxed as capital. Now, you can see with that section, proving what your original intention was is critical because you would say, let's say where you do acquire the land and you intended to keep it, what you didn't uh, intend to do was to sell it. Uh, and so you might say, I'm outside this section. That's where the evidence of your original intention is very, very important. And, and I think you kind of touched on another linked question there, which was, at what point would capital gains turn into income tax when buying and selling property? So if I bought and sold one property that wasn't my own residence in my own name, would that be seen as uh, a capital gain, any profit that I made from that sale? But if I say did three over a short period of time, then would that be seen as income tax? Well, I mean, it's much more likely if you've got three, but even if you've got one, of course, suppose you just, your next door neighbor was in desperate straits and you said, look, I'll buy your house. 
so you buy it. It actually was quite a good price. And you, you, know, you never wanted to keep it. You're just doing him a favor. And then immediately you sell it and you make it, let's suppose, a nice profit. Now, in that, it's quite an interesting situation that because a lot of people would say, well, you were just doing your next door neighbor a favor. So you're not really trading in the way that traders do. There's quite an interesting case on that. There's an old Privy Council case called Izwira, where a lady wanted to be near her daughter at a boarding school. So the only property she could buy was one with a large garden. And so she bought it, but she didn't want the large garden. So immediately she bought it, she sold it off. And she said, well, I'm not trading because I didn't enter into this uh, whole thing to make a profit. But the Privy Council, um, quite rightly, I think, said, well, it doesn't really matter. What you've done is typical of what traders do. You bought with an intention of selling. Whether you, your intention was a commercial one or not doesn't mm -hmm. make any difference. So there's some quite interesting law in this area. But, I mean, going back to your question, obviously, once you repeat the exercise two or three times, um, you're going to be in grave difficulty in yeah. saying, well, I'm not a trader, because you are. You're turning over your land frequently. Yeah. And I guess that, that counts for your primary residence just as much as it would for any other property. If well, that's quite an interesting question. I mean, there, there are people who very judiciously buy houses with promise. They live in them and they put on a conservatory. They do up the garden, improve the kitchen, and they say, well, it's a nice house. I think, um, I think I'll sell it now and I'll go and buy another one. Now, there's a very fine line there. Um, and you, you could, I think, quite successfully, if you genuinely live in the house, say for a year or two each time, you can say, well, that's not trading what I'm doing. It's just living in places and improving them and selling them to my advantage. There is, however, a point on that. There's a capital gains tax point on principal private residence relief. It doesn't apply if you buy the house with the sole or main object of realizing a gain from selling it. Well, of course, our person who's improving the kitchen, improving the garden, and putting on the conservatory might still say, well, uh, you know, I like to have all these facilities in my house. So I wasn't really trying to realize a gain from the development. It's just that when I'd done it, I felt I've got to go and do something else. I can't just sit here doing nothing. So um, I sold that one and I bought another one. He probably will win his case, but it's getting a bit finely balanced. And there are also, of course, it, it, just a, a, a small point, really. If you were at one point, obviously, um, developing property and then you couldn't sell them and you started renting them out, that could also have VAT issues as well. So, also, uh, yes. Do you, do you want to say more about that, Simon? So it, it, it can be quite common if you develop um, properties and, of course, then due to the market or whatever situation is, if you can't sell them on, yes. um, you may then try to rent them out to return yes. some kind of uh, profit upon them. But if you've been claiming VAT back on the development, of course, you may then have to repay back some of that VAT. Uh, yes. 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 So that's just a small point. And also yeah. on, on finance costs, and then a slight tangent here, obviously, if you're a trading company, it's a normal expense of trading is a finance cost interest that you would pay. Um, if you're an investment company, it's not. It's a non-trading loan relationship. Yes. So that affects yes. how you relieve the losses. With a normal loss to the trading activity, you could carry it forward, relieve it uh, groupally fully, you can carry it back fully. 
But if it's a non-treadmill low relationship, you can offset it uh, in the current year. You can group relieve it, of course, but you can only carry it back against previous profits from other low relationships. So it's slightly yes. different. Yes. yes, it's much more limited in those cases, yeah. From that point of view, then, if you are doing a development, doing it in a special purpose vehicle that maybe is, you might have a holding company that also owns um, that special purpose vehicle, but also an uh, investment company. So if you are doing the uh, development and things, um, the market drops and you can't sell them and you think, right, I do have to hold it, you don't really want to hold it in that special purpose vehicle because of various other reasons, but uh, the VAT one is, a, is, a, is another good one. Um, and so you may then want to sell uh, as a linked transaction to your investment company to hold it in there and not just hold it within that SPV. It's the intention is the key thing because obviously some companies do buy up land stock and keep it for a number of years. Yeah. As long as your intention is to trade, that's not a problem. So that's a key thing really is, is to document it, do a board minute, all, all the boring things that people don't do. Uh, with companies to do a board money, you know, write down your intention. Why did you buy that land? Yeah, well, absolutely. One yeah. of the thing, one of the things I am a bit, a bit confused about is for these, what I call property traders, who will buy residential properties, but very frequently buy and sell, buy and sell, and they're not really developing them out. They're just, um, they're maybe getting a good price for them because they can move very quickly on the purchase. And then they will sell them out at an auction and make a small profit. But they're or, divide, or maybe divide them into flats or sell the garden. Well, normally they won't be doing any development. No, no, they're, they're pure dealers. Yeah, so they're, they're pure dealers on, on sort of residential properties. Now, sometimes the properties might be low in value, so it wouldn't warrant setting up special purpose vehicles for each asset. And because no. there's so many coming through, so. What would their options be in terms of how they would structure that? Would it still just be in one trading company, do you think, would be, would be beneficial? Yeah, yes, let's look at these things in the whole. But yeah, I mean, there's no harm in having just a single trading entity. And yeah. if you're doing regular transactions via the auction houses or whatever, um, that would be a perfectly good medium. It depends, yeah. of course, on, on the volume, the profits, and so on. And obviously, one, one thing that I would be... Oh, careful of in terms of and again when it when you're when you've got lots of properties that may be a smaller value a lot of people may think oh well if i'm developing larger value i can just do it within the same company maybe if i'm developing two or three at the same time but that brings with it other issues in terms of financing where they may want a uh, a floating charge across all the assets within that company yeah, yes, yes, and uh, yes. although with most finance in limited companies you're giving pgs in developments, it may be you're just giving PGs for cost overruns or even 20% of the debt. But even if you're giving a PG for the entire amount of debt, you'd much rather have a, a personal guarantee on something than have the bank have a, uh, a floating charge over your other assets because yeah. if it comes yeah. to liquidation, you are in control of what gets liquidated rather than the other party, which I think is a, a very important point for people just to remember. Yeah, that, that's very important. I mean, if, if you're borrowing... A large amount, percentage-wise, on a particular property, you might want to keep that property in an SPV, uh, yeah. as you say, control the liability. Uh, mm. I think that that could alter circumstances. I suppose too, if you're one of these wheeler dealers, 
you might say, well, if I have a separate company for each property, I've always got the option of selling the company and not selling the property. That might be of interest to you. Um, but then, you've got to be very you'd, careful. But then wouldn't you fall it into might be said you're still trading in the shares as well as the property. I mean, there are all sorts of risks there. Wouldn't that also trigger that um, trap we talked about right at the beginning where as you're li- that, that it's likely that that property would get liquidated um, uh, well, that, that would certainly be a, a worry, yes. And also, I mean, if you want to complete the litany of horrors, the artificial transactions in land section, you see, it, it would operate where any land is acquired with the sole or main object of realizing a gain from its disposal and a gain of a capital nature is made. Well, the revenue might come along and say, well, the company acquired the land with a view to selling it at a profit. Um, what you've done instead is realized the profit by selling the shares. So there's your capital gain, which you've realized. And you see um, the section could apply. Mm. I think at the end of the day, the main, the main reason for having a separate company is probably going to be to limit financial exposure to that particular transaction rather than have all your assets made liable that you group within one company. Yeah. Mm, I suspect yeah. that's going to be the main consideration. And then plus the benefits that we kind of discussed about interest relief and stamp duty and various Yes, yes. It's, yes. it's just intention, it's documenting things correctly, doing board minutes, you know, not all the time, but doing some board minutes, um, as you would expect a company to do anyway before they made up a large purchase, and talk to your accountant, get it so the accounts are shown correctly, uh, otherwise yes. taxing them will not follow. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There is um, one area we haven't discussed so far, which is actually quite an important one. It's where either a company or typically perhaps a family trust is sitting on inherited land. Uh, or in the case of a company, it might own an, own fa- an old factory site. The business has been sold and the wreck of the old factory sits there. Suddenly, it acquires development value. It, it is just worth saying that those situations where you're realizing what you might call an inherited asset, um, if you set it straight out, even with development value, you're not trading and you're not caught by the artificial transactions in land section. So it's worth bearing that in mind. Equally, if you say, well, actually, we've got this inherited land, let's develop it. That, in it, that may be the start of a trade, depending on what you're going to do. But you only pay the development trading profit tax from the time, so to speak, when the intention to do the development started. So all the inherited accrued old gain uh, is still a capital gain and not an income gain. That can be very important. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, worth remembering. And I know um, at the beginning, Simon touched on the different uh, the benefits of, of using a company in investment properties to have different types of shares. Yes. Um, I think it's worth sort of talking about development companies and different types of shares as well, because from my point of view, it's always, that's, that's more important because if you're raising finance 
for a development that normally is shorter term, you can engineer the shares in such a way that it benefits both parties. So, for example, if I've got a, um, if I'm doing a development and I'm trying to raise some equity on that yes. site, and I tell you, oh, look, we'll be in and out and you'll have your money back in 12 months, no problem. And you might think, well, hold on a minute. I don't think he's going he's gonna to get it all done in that time. I think two years is probably more realistic, but I still yeah. think it's profitable. Then you can do anything like cumulative shares where, whereby the profit um, builds up, rolls up into the next year. Um, you can create preferential shares or even redeemable shares if you're if you're going to be holding it. But I think the point Simon made previously was just about how important it is to get that on your articles of association when you set it up. And it's quite easy to, to engineer it in such a way that if someone has a particular concern, you can normally put that concern to bed with the um, specific type of shares. Obviously, as long as the company actually makes a profit. Yes, I mean, I, I, you're, I, is this right? You're looking at a situation where the person providing, let's call it the finance, uh, is maybe going to have to wait longer than a year and maybe um, is prepared to have shares rather than a straight loan. Well, you could, you could have two. So you could have a loan yes. against the asset, but the company, you, you might be short of equity. To put in, so you may be raising. Oh yes, you, you could then invite invite yeah. the investor to come in at two levels. Yes, yeah. of course, if the investor was a friendly, disposed member of your family of great antiquity, you <laughs> see what it would be quite interesting to do was offer him some preference shares mm -hmm. in the company rather than having a loan, maybe with a tweak which gives him the right to control the company if things don't go properly. And you've done him a great favor, perhaps, by giving him business property relief where he previously didn't have it. Well, exactly. And that's kind of the next part of it is the benefits in investing into the equity tax. Yes. Yeah. And also, for, the, for someone who is thinking about not just lending money, but also investing in other people's property developments. Yes. They be then lending money from their personal name, or would it be more beneficial to lend to set up their own investment company to invest it into other people's? Because I know obviously there's well, well, well don't say investment company. Set up a company which goes into a joint venture with the builder, and then, and then you see. You, you can say, um, here's my business property relief. Yeah. There was a time, I don't know whether it's still going on, but there was a time when I had clients who were doing this on a, an amazingly large scale, mm. and it, it was quite attractive. And so by having the business property relief, that's benefiting their capital gain. Um, well, it is, it is, inheritance tax. Their inheritance tax, sorry, inheritance tax. And, um, and they would still pay... Um, corporation tax on any profits that oh, yes, they, they willingly pay that because basically they turned I mean look at it now if you put your money in a bank you get some infinitesimal rate of interest yeah you can find a, a, a builder you trust and maybe um, you set it up in such a way that 
always the first slice of the profits goes to you yeah. and not to him, yeah. uh, you might get a, a 6 10% return, yeah. which is far more than you get in the bank, plus your inheritance tax relief as well. But I mean, what I was kind of getting at was if it's a short term, so they think they want to get in, they want it could be a year yes. long, but as the investor, you might be worried that it's going to take longer. You could then have cumulative and preference share. Yeah, you could, yes. And you know, get yes. supplies first, but also if you're not paid back by that first year, then those, those would have been profits for that year get rolled up. So you've got a bigger chunk and it's still proportionate once you do take take that money out. Yes. And then, it yeah. also depends what you want to agree as well, because also you, you can play around with share rights, your income yeah. rights, capital rights and voting rights. You could even have a, a mechanism in your uh, articles where if your profits weren't paid out, that's converted into share capital. So in yeah. effect, you get a bigger chunk. Uh, yeah. You've got to be careful about giving away voting rights because that, that, that's valuable. So if you give yes. the voting rights away to somebody, I mean, I, I read somewhere recently that it's, it's probably a quarter of the value of the business. Yes, voting rights all on their own. There's a Privy Council case where without actually any evidence, <laughs> the judges thought that if you had nothing but voting control, but you had total voting control, that was worth 30% of the assets. Yeah. Mm. So it's quite valuable. Anyhow, but I mean, just going back to your basic point, there are some very interesting marriages of convenience <laughs> that can be arranged between people who would otherwise be investors uh, and, and builders and developers who want finance, yeah. rather than going to a conventional source of finance with all the problems of guarantees, charges, and heaven knows what else, you could construct quite an interesting little deal with um, uh, someone who otherwise would be getting a very poor return from the bank and would have no inheritance tax reliefs it's well worth looking at it always yeah. goes to show i think the problem in life is to be constructive <laughs> don't do what everyone else does but think of something a bit better yeah absolutely <laughs> well, i think we've, we've, we've distinguished between investments and trading whether you're flipping land or developing interest treatments in, in various entities whether trading or investments um Share rights is, is important because it's very, very flexible. But again, you've got to think about that from the very, very start. But it's not difficult to do. The important thing is, is to amend the articles because that is a rule book for the company. It's also probably worthwhile having a shareholders agreement because of certain rules you cannot write in articles because the, uh, the company's act will override some of those rules. So it's nice to have also an agreement which um, if there is a dispute between shareholders, you can refer back to that. Yeah, I mean, just some small things to mention. Obviously, if you're a company, you can you can get exemption from stamp duty if you buy uh, land off an executor. Yeah. Um, but there's certain criteria, of course. You can't do that if you're a, if you're an individual, but you need to be a property trader, of course. Um, so there's lots of little quirks that that really benefits trading through a company. And I think Andrew's quite right that I think we will have to pay back all of these uh, COVID-19 um, governmental loans or whatever, that, that that will probably be in a few years' time. But we have to pay that back by a taxation at some point. And, and just one, one, one other point I've remembered. So am I right in thinking that there's rollover relief on capital gains tax if someone sells a property and wants to put the proceeds back into their next property purchase? And 
if if that is correct, is it just for personally held properties, or is there anything that a limited company can do in the same way to benefit from from that for corporation tax rollover or something along those lines? Well, you, you get road. I think that there's always been rollover relief since 1965 when capital gains tax came in. And I mean, fundamentally, it doesn't matter whether you're an individual trader or a company. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, for example, sell one factory and buy another, then you roll over the gain into the new one. There are various classes of assets which qualify. Um, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't apply to development land. No, because that would be such. profits. Yes, you yeah. just pay tax on the profit. Yeah, uh, which is why a company is quite handy, really, because you pay the least amount of tax, and therefore you've got the most um, money to apply to the next deal. One so, thing we haven't discussed, and I mean, maybe we don't want to, but it's it's a matter which keeps a lot of people very interested, is what I might call the offshore element. I mean, can you structure your development profits so that, um, for example, they either escape UK tax or the real benefit goes to an offshore resident or an offshore trust or something like that. Uh, that that's obviously quite an interesting point. Um, you're getting into some fairly complex uh, provisions and maybe it's too complex for this podcast, but it, it, there are one or two points you could make if you were interested. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think so. That would be very interesting. Well, I suppose one point you see, suppose you've got, I mean, many families have got them, they've got overseas trusts. And I think a lot of people find these overseas trusts cause an awful lot of problems. Maybe you've got, you know, uh, charges left, right and centre on this, that, everything else. On the other hand, though, you may have a useful reservoir of cash. And for example, uh, you're a developer and the um, the um, offshore trust spots an opportunity to buy some land which might have development value. So it buys the land and may, for example, consider sending it across eventually to the development company that the family have got in the UK. Well, obviously, if they sell it across after they've improved the development value, then the, the, a large part of the potential gain is going offshore, which could be attractive. Um, of course, it depends on how the gains of that offshore trust are taxed. But on the face of it, there would be an advantage, subject, unfortunately, to the dreaded section I mentioned already, 752 following, which certainly could apply to capital gains realized from the disposal of offshore land. The other point that does interest people is, can you hold the shares in um, a company which is carrying on land development in in such a way that the the profits um, arise offshore? That's very difficult. If for development profits, for dealing profits, it's possible because, of course, it's perfectly possible for an offshore company to buy and sell land in the UK and, and say, 
well, we may be trading, but we're not trading in the UK because all the decisions are taken abroad. And there could therefore be some interest in looking at companies like that. The problem usually is you're looking at the transfer of asset abroad provisions. And so you're looking at a section which says, if you make a transfer to an offshore entity and a profit arises and you've got some power to enjoy that profit, you're taxed on all the profits. Well, that section will certainly be a problem. But maybe somewhere in the family, for example, there's an employee benefit trust, which was founded by a company, not by an individual. And that trust wouldn't be caught necessarily by the transfer of asset abroad provisions in their worst form, by, for example, acquiring and, and holding and then selling some land uh, in a company which it holds abroad. So there might be some possibilities there. The other possibility which people have looked at is holding shares in such dealing companies through um, personal portfolio bonds or possibly an ordinary life policy. The reason for that is that the gain in those cases um, is attributed to the policy and not to the underlying asset. And there can be some interesting structures but one needs special advice. But it's worth mentioning that you aren't necessarily totally tied to paying corporation tax on trading profits because the land is here. Um, I think one would say, though, you've got to be careful before you put your foot in it because you could get a much worse result than having the tax payable in a normal way inside the company. Yes, absolutely. Anything else we want to say? Oh, I think we've covered things like incorporation in previous podcasts. Yeah. Because like I said, that kind of ties in with transferring property from personal ownership into companies, but I think we've covered that quite well previously. One thing, perhaps just a final point, if you have got money in an offshore trust or an offshore entity and you want to use that money to finance a development in the UK, it is worth just thinking of having short-term loans to do it rather than a loan that necessarily lasts for over a year. Reason being that the deduction of tax on in, from interest payments made abroad uh, normally doesn't apply to short interest, i.e. interest on a short-term less than a year loan. And that can be quite attractive. Okay. Another way of using money inside an offshore trust, uh, which is just sitting there, and you can't think of a better way of employing it. Just um, one other point I've thought of is uh, when, when people incorporate and they set up um, companies, normally the directors are putting money in, especially yes. property. So there's a, normally quite a hefty director's loan account on there. Yes. Um, what are the benefits or, or well, pros and cons, I suppose, if any, of charging interest on the director's loan? The immediate benefit, of course, is it's a way of getting money out of the company for that paying national insurance. Mm. Yeah. You've lent money to the company, so you should be able to charge at a commercial rate. It'll normally be unsecured lending, so commercial rate, 
four to five, six percent is, is better than leaving it in the bank. Yeah. Um, I mean, there have been some some uh, people who are doing corporations and creating false loan accounts. But we won't go into all of, all of that, which we, 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 we and Andrew have <laughs> discussed recently, which are, um, which are just ludicrous. It's also, um, uh, I suppose, Simon, it's worth mentioning, isn't it? I mean, if you've got a pension scheme, Hmm. Now, if you've got money in the pension scheme, uh, uh, the rules are quite strict, but they can lend it to a family company. They've normally got to do it on proper security. But of yeah. course, they're, they're, um, for them, the interest should be tax-free. And okay. so you're, you're doing, doing yourself a good turn in the long run in terms of your pension. But, but just back onto the um, charging interest on director's loans then, obviously you're going to be paying your effective rate of tax by drawing that, that interest amount out. Yes. And it's whether or not that it's beneficial to charge, uh, it's comparing that to the corporation tax, isn't it? And if it's going to cause benefits. But the way I would look at it is certainly when I'm raising finance, having another source of income that, in theory, is not property investment related, even though it's coming from your property company, can often be quite a good a good plus when trying to raise finance from certain lenders who want to see not just one source of income. Yeah, and also it's, it's worth some confusion is one says a credit on your loan account, that's yeah. like you're receiving cash. Yes. Not you for getting a check from the company, you're taxed upon that amount. So people kind of confuse that issue. And also it's for balance sheet purposes as well, if that's going to, if, you, if you've had a director's loan account for six years in a company and all of a sudden you decide you're going to start taking out those interest payments that may be rolled up, then uh, understanding what that's going to look like for your balance sheet maybe if there's going to be no profit because again, if you're trying to raise finance, that can cause an issue. To make sure your balance sheet is healthy, yeah. you don't want to start charging crazy amounts of interest to put you into in an insolvent position on, on, on the face of it. But like you said, there's also compliance to do. You have to fill in a CT61 form. So yeah, you need to look at it again commercially. It's not just really a yes, matter. On, on the other hand, I, I suppose, I mean, I can see all sorts of reasons why you probably want to leave the money in because why, why take it out and pay a higher tax rate than the company's paying? On the other hand, if you do want to take money out, let's suppose you do, it's better than having a dividend because the interest should be tax deductible. And secondly, um, it's better than having a salary because there's no NIC. It's quite an attractive way of extracting funds if you need to extract funds. Yeah. But yeah. if you don't need to, why do it? Hmm. I think that's what I, I'd say. Okay, great. Well, I think, uh, I think we've, we've hit quite a lot of points. So should we leave it there for for this time? It was up to you. If you think that's the end of the questions. Well, I th- I, I, I've certainly got no other questions. I don't know if... I, if no, I, think, I think we've covered all the points in one way or another that we wanted to raise. So very good. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay. Well, thanks very much. And um, I'm sure we'll speak again on the next one. Okay. Well done. Yeah. Bye-bye now. Please join me next time for more detailed discussions about property on The Rodcast. Oh, 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 oh,